0: I'm Dave Moss. I run the Unfunded List. I've been doing that for, oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, Margaret actually runs the Unfunded List. There's a lot of people that, uh, when you run a nonprofit, uh, every time you start thanking people, you run the risk of missing somebody. Uh, but the person that I, that I absolutely can't miss is Margaret. I want to, we're going to do a little bit of a round. Uh, And also, uh, my mother uh, helped me out. Uh, if you're going to start a nonprofit, I think you should have a retired and qualified mother <laughs> before you do that. That's been, that's been invaluable as well. Uh, but, all, but a lot of you have helped out as well. A lot of you are evaluators, have sent proposals to us, uh, have given me advice, things I want to thank a, 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 in a general sense. Thank you all. Uh, and uh, uh, in particular, I think we're all um, quite honored to hear from our panelists today, uh, like me. Uh, most of these folks have founded something uh, and are pretty uniquely familiar with the, with the challenges that are involved with that. Uh, and Russ here, uh, who has some founder experience himself is also, uh, plays some sort of advisory role to all of our panelists. So our, uh, moderator, Russ is, uh, familiar with them and some of the specific challenges that they've gone through. So I'm hoping that we have a nice intimate panel today. Uh, the, um, motto for unfunded uh, in Latin is ex audio compario, con cor, uh which means listen, learn, speak. And I like to say that uh, no matter what we're doing, I want to make sure that everybody listens, learns, and speaks. So that's, our panelists are going to do some listening, they're going to learn, and they're going to obviously speak. Uh, and in the audience as well, right, you're going to listen, you're going to learn, I want you to uh, also feel free to ask questions near the end, uh, come up to our panelists afterwards, uh, make sure that over the course of the weekend, uh, you all practice ex audio compario, Convoquor, right? Uh, I also want to give a shout out to my to our runner up Latin motto, which was Ciencia Es Potestas. Knowledge is power. Right. So keep, try to keep those things in mind as you go through this. The more you know, see, how do you know how to pronounce it? <laughs> <laughs> Dead language, mom. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to remind everybody that we review proposals uh, twice a year. Our next deadline is March 1st. If you have a fundraising proposal of any kind, I'd be happy to, to get some experts, some of them might be in this room, some of them might be in another room somewhere, uh, but I'll get the most appropriate experts I can to read your proposal, give you the most helpful advice we possibly possibly can. We've been doing that every six months for the last few years. Uh, we get better and better at it each time. So if you've got a proposal, send it in. Uh, if not, uh, then join us and review some of the proposals. We'd love to have you as reviewers as well. Uh, again, that deadline is coming up March 1st. Uh, and with that, I'm going to let um, Russ get started here. I, I know your name, but but that, Ross is sitting that, there, and I'm just so nervous about it.
1: <laughs> but I got
0: it right. One of, of, one of my happiest
2: moments was when Ross and I met up with my friend Rusty. And that somehow felt so pleasing to have a trio like that uh, together. Hi. Uh, my name is Russ Finkelstein, and I am once known as a very, very uh, reluctant facilitator or speaker, period. So my goal is to hopefully just move us along and allow these amazing people to share a little bit more of their story. Uh, I was uh, one of the founders of this thing called Idealist.org. And and as a result of that, I just enjoyed meeting with folks who were themselves founders and were going through things and trying to chat with them about some of the things that they face. Uh, and I have the sort of like great fortune uh, to work in a variety of spaces where I get to work with founders and chat with them about uh, their struggles and their issues and their successes, uh, and to try to help them both with creating structures to be more successful, as well as to try kind to of offer up uh, kind of emotional support whenever possible. So the, when I was chatting with uh, Dave, I said, you know, this is, if I were to do something, especially this concept of, Founders and people who are funding them, that's what this event has a a focus around that. Uh, I'd like to have a real conversation about the challenges that I've learned that some of them face when they're doing that work. So uh, yeah, welcome, thank you all for for attending. And uh, I think the way we're gonna begin this is by having you all share a little bit about what your work is and why it matters. So do you wanna start, Ross? Sure. (laughs) I'm
3: Ross Morales-Riquetto, I co-founded an organization called Run For Something. Uh, We recruit and support young, diverse, progressive folks who are running for state and local office for the first or second time. Uh, Our work matters in large part because there is no pipeline on the left uh, or in progressive spaces, or there hasn't been in the past, uh, for people who basically weren't white dude lawyers uh, to run for office and so a huge part of the work that we do is changing what it looks like to be an elected official to make it so that something that you know somebody in Columbus Ohio like can see themselves in uh and also bring sort of like honor back to the profession of like being an elected official at the end of the day it's public it's a form of public service and I think um a huge part of the reason why I do this work is because I think we really need to see it that way again and that's not how a majority of people in the united states see it so
4: yeah hi i'm el hearns Uh, i am the executive director and founder of the marsha p johnson institute which is a human rights organization that protects and defends uh, black transgender people here in the united states uh, that is the work that I have chosen. I say I've chosen it because it is certainly uh, work that tests your faith. Um, I chose that work because there was really a, uh, I think, opportunity and open space to do more around this particular community that had really been shut out of societal uh, spaces, but also what we consider societal norms, and so. Our work has really emerged at a time where the murders of black transgender women in the United States are mostly what people understand today. And we wanted to be able to create a space that uh, exalts it that there's more uh, to our humanity and there's also a lot to fight for. Hi everyone, my
5: name is Hannah. Um, I run an organization called, uh, Transformation. I also have a stutter which you'll find, Um, so Transformation is an app that helps people hosting events redistribute the food that they don't use. Um, So from places like this, like you have a whole spread, where's it going to go after this? There's really no options that you have unless you want to spend hours on the phone trying to call shelters or soup kitchens or trying to put it in an Uber and take it there yourself and they're not going to take it because I tried. Um, so it's, I, we started it because I spent a lot of time working in the event space and I thought it was really dumb that it didn't already exist. Like, why is it that everything you can do at the touch of a button, like I can order food, I can like call a ride, I can hire a dog walker. But when it comes to like me having all the success and wanting to take it somewhere, all of a sudden I hit every single roadblock. Like, is it the right type of food? Will someone get sick? How do I pack it? How do I get it there? And these are questions that everyone that works in any, like you can work in hospitality, restaurants, you can be hosting this event and have the same questions. Um, So we decided to build an app that kind of worked like Uber, but for food pickups. Um, So it's instant, you can schedule a pickup on demand for any food that you haven't touched. Um, It's connected to Uber Eats, DoorDash, like people who are already driving around doing this kind of work, because I don't think any work should be free and volunteers are not gonna solve the issue. Um, So it connects you to a driver that's already doing this as like for a living They'll pick it up and they're automatically routed to a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen where the people can eat it that same day So now they get like steaks and tiramisu, which I think is great (laughs) (laughs) I don't eat like that either Um, never taken the food. but uh, yeah, I did once, but and I think it was it was just a matter of um, it wasn't I haven't been food insecure. It was just a space that I thought needed this and it didn't exist. And so it wasn't so much of a personal pull as a this is a really stupid problem and I can't believe that there isn't anything out there yet.
6: Hi everyone, I'm Ivelisse or Ivelisse in Espanol. I'm the founder and CEO of Radical Health. Um, What we do at Radical Health is we really look at health equity, right? The idea that everyone should have access to equitable care um, especially those in marginalized or historically marginalized communities. And we, we address that through meaningful conversation. Um, our conversations happen in person, so we use indigenous circles to talk, right? What does health mean? Um, if I asked you all that, you all would have different questions or different answers, rather. Um, and we really get to go into community and have spaces and, and talk about that. Um, and then we built out an app that is a Know Your Rights for Health app which helps pregnant people of color ask questions before we go in for an appointment um, and beyond. Uh, so I always talk about when we look at, at health especially, we probably spent more time picking out one of those lunch boxes or you know coffee or tea than we do thinking about our appointments, right? And, and what questions we should ask. Um, and today in the US, Black women die on average three to four times more likely during pregnancy um, compared to their white counterparts. Um, and a lot of that is you know, structural bias and racism, but more importantly, um, it's the power and the agency right, to hold a healthcare system that doesn't serve any of us well um, accountable and really help foster those more meaningful conversations. Um, I started this because I'm from the Bronx, I'm born and raised there, I still live there. And even though I had a really successful career in healthcare, I trained physicians on new drugs that would come out. Um, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, uh, I realized it didn't matter how much money I made, didn't matter how smart I was or how many great people I knew and all my connections, we were still in a hospital and in a system that treated us unfairly uh, because of our skin color and because of our socioeconomic status. Um, and so for me, it was really just troubling to see that, you know, you could have all the resources and not be able to navigate the system and also not be able to be, be heard and be seen. Um, so I kind of wanted to change that. I want to change it with people who don't necessarily have the pedigree or all the letters after your name, just knowing that what you've lived through and what you're living through is important and needs to be centered and valued. Um, and together through that organizing and coming together of conversations and self-agency is how we change healthcare.
2: So it's easy to see across the, the responses that all of you were reacting to voids, right? You all noticed a void. I'm curious, uh, Going off of actual questions I told you I was asked, um, can you talk a little bit about like what you did in the way of like landscape analysis? I'm just thinking about folks from this room who are thinking about maybe starting something. So how did you go about making sure you thought there was a void? How did you go about making sure that in fact there was a void? What was that process like? You of you educating yourself about what the landscape was before you decided to say like I'm going to go and create a thing that's going to try to impact this problem? And we could do that in any order
6: you decide. I'm, I'm happy to start. So, I worked in healthcare as my like day job. And then, because I needed to do something more fulfilling, I was a community organizer. Um, and so, for me, I just literally pulled everyone I knew to my dining room table and I said, Come over, I will give you wine and free snacks. Let's just talk. Um, and started asking questions about like, you know, there was I had a teacher, a doctor, my aunt, my cousin. Um, and I mean, pretty much if I saw any of you, I'd be like, come over, don't <laughs> worry, it's not weird at all. Um, and just started asking questions about like, so, you know, when you have a problem, right? Like, do you feel like you trust your doctor? And what are the things, if you had a magic wand, what do you want? Um, and it was through that process that I just started organizing and grew out of my kitchen table pretty fast. And then started going to everyone I knew who worked at a nonprofit. And I was like, can I like just chat with you? Can I chat with, you know, your, I went to a music program where they taught kids cello and I'm like asking them questions about health, right? And it turned out that like the music teacher was like, yeah, like all these kids and parents keep coming to us. But like, I'm a cello teacher, I don't know what to do. Um, And so just started expanding, I mean, really organizing, using community organizing principles to ask questions.
4: Yeah, so I love the kitchen table. I think the kitchen table for Uh, so many of us, especially, uh, black people, uh, indigenous folks, uh, people of color, uh, is such a place of symbolism, but also just of importance. Um, so, you know, what I'm doing now, I didn't know people did that for a living. Uh, so I love this, like, oh, community organizing principle that started using that. I didn't know that that's what I was doing for the longest time. I had no idea that there was this thing, you know, I didn't know the nonprofit industrial complex, I had no, um, no knowledge of what that was coming from where I come from in Columbus, Ohio, there really aren't a lot of nonprofits, um, and certainly not profitable ones. Um, so I kind of came into this work on accident. Uh, I wanted to create community space for other women like me, and there wasn't any space like that that existed. And so, At the very beginning of my professional uh, journey, it was really just organic and unpaid and (coughs) completely unthought of. I just wanted to create space for other Black trans women. Uh, I was creating that space while the murders of Black people were happening by the police. And so that work kind of merged together and kind of formed this larger narrative around all Black Lives Matter. Um, Mm -hmm. I think during my time with Black Lives Matter, I got exposed to the world in a way that I never had been. So I understood what was happening in, um, you know, cross-cultural movements, but also what was happening in black movement. And one of the things that I was clear, there was no designated space that was specifically for black transgender people. And so what was constantly happening to me is I would show up in, in a room, very much like this, you know, coalition meetings, or or whatever the case may be, and I was the only one from my community. And so I was just like, I'm sick of this. Y'all keep inviting me and I'm here by myself. It's 50 of you and it's just me. And what started happening is there were people who became very resistant to that, who I was working with. And I said, Okay, y'all tired of hearing my mouth. I actually am just going to quit and I'm going to do my own thing. Um, But doing my own thing was something, again, I had no knowledge of. So, you know, I think it's just important to share some of those stories. Sometimes you have no idea what the hell you're doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you want to give up. But I think one of the things that I've always tried to maintain is that I'm still connected to whatever the experience I was having that led me to a kitchen table. I was fresh Mm -hmm. out of jail. So that was kind of why I was like, you know, I was lonely in jail, but I was also lonely in the world. How can I create some community with people who might have that experience in the future? How can I interrupt that from happening to them? So I always just try to stay connected to like, what was my reason at the very beginning, as opposed to all of the things that will become your reasons once you create something. Because most people will tell you that their number one reason um well maybe most people won't say this actually but i'm going to tell you the truth it's money most people stay in it for money Mm -hmm. um but it's really important to make sure that your your foundation is there so that money isn't the root of uh, what keeps you encouraged i think
5: I love what you said. There. I think when I think of the void that we initially set out to fill, it was so different from what it actually became. Like when we started, I was like, oh, we're in the food space. We're we're solving for hunger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think very quickly working in this space, like I, I realized one, I cannot speak for the hungry population because I've never been there. And I shouldn't feel like I have the right or the experience to be a spokesperson for that. And two, it's just that... I don't know one just because you're giving a hungry person a sandwich doesn't mean that you're solving hunger. Like hunger right, is just right. because people can't afford to buy food, not because they don't have access. Um, so that, but also like realize as I was going on and sort of trying to navigate the space that like, there's a lot of other things that can be solved for when you're solving for one thing. Like I think for, for us in working in the food space, a lot of it was just, we don't use people in the way that like in a fair way like to to actually solve issues like we rely really heavily on unpaid labor we think it's okay to pay people minimum wage to do a job that maybe is impacting one population in a very positive way but then is keeping people at the minimum wage or expecting them to work for free and so i think as we continue to move into this space i realize that we're not working in the hunger space where. We're working in the environment space, but in my mind, I think the most important thing that we're doing is that we're actually creating more like economic opportunity for a population that works in the nonprofit space that is very much overlooked because the service providers aren't really seen as like the population that should be benefiting while doing good. And to do good a lot of the time means to work for a very low wage or work for free. And so I think in we started out as like a hunger organization, but realized like very quickly that is not like you could be working in a space and people can tell you your environment, your hunger, you're this, you're that. But like it doesn't. There's so much. All these problems are interconnected, I feel. And so when you start with one, you're going to realize like, oh, it's connected to this and it's connected to this and like a hundred other things. And I think the important thing is to find something that you feel comfortable representing um, and making sure that if you're working in a space that you don't represent properly, that you find the people who are and bring them in. Um, I think I, we, to be completely honest, we were short-staffed and like, I didn't have the time to do as much community outreach as I would have liked. And so instead of our lens being hunger, I made, like I put my full focus on finding couriers, delivery people, drivers, made them very much like the face of what we do And if you ask me, like, I don't work in the hunger space. I work in the um, economic empowerment space because those drivers are the reason why I'm doing this in the first place. It's not, I do not think what we're doing solves hunger at all, but I do think that it provides some kind of economic opportunity that wasn't there before. And so just navigating spaces, I think you realize that like you're dipping your toes into a lot of bins or pools, and then you pick the pool that you feel like you can most accurately represent and you sort of go with that.
2: Do you, so as you all think about this, so kind of moving over from this notion of filling the void, I think there's also an idea of, so who am I to be the person to do this? So can you speak a little bit to what it was? What, was there a moment or what it took for you to, to, to have the confidence that you were the right person to be doing this work? Any, any more? <laughs>
4: So for me, um, you know, I have a lot of different experiences um, that kind of led to me being like, I choose me, Uh, but I didn't always start out that way. I think because it was, the territory was so open and I I felt so uncomfortable, I was really okay being in the backseat and being just quiet. Um, so probably my first year of organizing, I just, I was quiet. Uh, I think, and I talk, so I talk a lot about the beginning of my career because it informs so much of what's happening now. Um, so I try to proactively plan based on what it is that I've learned as opposed to just responding, 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 because there's a lot of reactionary things that happen when you're building something new. Um, And I like to be on the proactive end, but uh, I think there was just this piece of, not only was I doubting me, there were other people that were doubting me. And so I think there was a particular interview that I did. (laughs) And um, I did not want to do the interview, but I did it anyway. And I think that was the, the, the lesson for me in when my gut says, no, listen,
1: mm-hmm.
4: um, you know, and I still question all of the reasons why someone who I thought was, uh, a mentor encouraged me to do it. But nonetheless, uh, I'm sure you're going to talk about that. Choose your mentors wisely. Mm-hmm. My God. Um, but I did this interview and I literally had 30, 30 minutes of prep for the interview. So, um, I got the, um, the talking points like literally five minutes while I was in the makeup chair uh to do the interview and so it was the worst interview of my life um I was nervous I was just unprepared and I think probably weeks later I was like hmm I thought I had all of this support but I really didn't because I felt so unsupported and I think that was the moment for me was if I felt so unsupported in this space with what I thought were mentors and people to help me, then certainly I could feel unsupported by myself. Um, and so that was that started the trajectory of me thinking about what was missing uh, from my work and what was missing from, I think, um, just my personhood. And it was the ability to make decisions for myself without any influence. And that really shifted, I think, my own kind of pathway into, um, saying, okay, it's me. And I think one of the challenges even in creating an organization that I can talk about now, one of the things I'm currently experiencing, and I don't mind being honest with you all. I hope you all don't mind. Um, when you create something that is connected to your life and you create, an organizational space, so just a little bit more about MPJI. We are attempting to be a membership organization. Uh, So what that means is that we have many people who have shared identity and have shared experience that make up our organization. So there are very different views and ideas about what we should be doing. Figuring out a collective process and decision-making has been one that is challenging because at the end of the day, there are um, structural hierarchies and power that you have to think about, but there's also experiences. And so, you know, for me, I try to create at Open Space while also remembering that it is my identity, it is my experiences that also contribute to the organization. Um, So yeah, I mean, I don't have an answer for you all about how that's going. I think we're currently in process, but it is one of the most challenging things is to make sure that you aren't choosing yourself simply because you created a thing. And so one of the things that I really try to do is I try to make sure We're honoring other voices, we're honoring other experiences. So, you know, for instance, we're doing a Black History Month series, a digital series currently. I made sure that, you know, my team knew we would not honor anybody from our staff or our board just because it was important to make sure that there were new faces, new voices, new experiences, and new stories that the world had access to, but also to be able to just achieve. I think honoring other people besides yourself is one of the greatest ways to structure um, an organization. So that's what we try to do at MPJI. I'm
6: happy to answer. I think um, for me it was, I, I worked in corporate. I like hustled the whole way, worked long hours. Um, and I every time I worked for startups and pharmaceutical companies, I was often the only woman in the room and definitely the only person of color. And what would happen, and to be honest, um, I identify as Afro Latina, right? So, by far, the only Afro Latina in the room. Um, And what was happening was I was working for CEOs who, like, you know, made me work hard, made me feel guilty about going home for families. But yet, I was delivering and, like, you know, selling, bringing in contracts, bringing in clients, making sure everyone was happy. And in that whole process, it was one that I didn't see my community represented, I didn't see anyone that looked like me my community, like in communities like mine, and other, you know, historically marginalized communities were never represented in those boardrooms. Um, And for a long time, I doubted myself. I was like, who, not me, never me. Why, like, I'm so unqualified. Um, But then it just got to the point where I was like, if I could do it for you, um, I can absolutely do it for my community. Um, And I think I still struggle times where like, you know, I don't have an MPH, I don't have any of the public health or health degrees. Um, but what we're trying to do at Radical Health is we're, we're literally transforming this healthcare system from this paternalistic top-down approach to one where like the people lead. So if not me, then who? Mm-hmm. And then I'd also say like, you know, all of you, um, right, are the ones that should be leading. And then, I mean, to be fair, like I've also, there've been incredible, there've been incredible black and brown women that have led the way for me to even imagine that this is possible. Um, so it's still a, you know,
3: I can just kind of start somewhere. Yeah, of okay. I'm a, so like I'm a cis white dude. And so <laughs> um, in theory, like I should just like feel like this is like, yeah, like of course I should run an organization. Um, <laughs>
1: uh, uh,
3: that's what one would expect. Um, but like truthfully, like. If I'm being honest, like I still question on a regular basis whether I think I'm the right person, like to do this work. Probably I think that at least once every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of it is because, to a, to a large degree, like the work we do is with like young folks who are people of color um, from like traditionally marginalized backgrounds, and I'm none of those things. Um, I'm like youngish, like thirty-five. Um, But, like, you know, we're trying to get, like, folks, like, into the process who, um, like, would have never been a part of the process before, and honestly, who the process wasn't designed for. Um, So, I think that's part of it. I think some of it is also that, like, you know, I sort of, like, come to this work, like, as sort of, like, I'm, like, a, like, my background is in politics, like, I'm, Like a political operative, like you could call me a political hack, and I would like take that as a compliment. Um, (laughs) Like I chose politics as my chosen profession. I love it. I tried other things. I hated those other things. So I went back into politics again. Um, So you know, like I think that to like a large degree, like there are probably also people in the space that would probably be better at this work than I am. Um, I also think that, like, you know, a lot of this, like, for a run for something, what we did and the way we started, our success, like, honestly, in part, started by accident. Uh, my co-founder and I, like, literally, like, thought about this idea. We were like, well, like, let's give it a try. We thought it was going to be a side hustle. We thought if we were really lucky, maybe a hundred people would be interested in the first year we launched a website on inauguration day in 2017 and like over a thousand people signed up basically immediately. Um, and now 46,000 people have told us that they're interested and running for office, like all around the country. And so, you know, some of it, I think to a degree and part of the reason why we're doing it right now is in part because like there was a moment and we got all of those people coming in and we literally said to ourselves like, holy shit, like we this is not what we were planning to do Mm -hmm. and we have to do right by all of these people um so that we literally (laughs) set out to build an organization that was completely different than what we had originally designed and thought about that was like for the folks that were coming in the door and telling us that they were interested and i think a big part of what both my co-founder and i think a lot about is what happens to the org after us i don't think either one of us have any intention of staying for the, you know, for like 10, 15, 20 years, I personally believe, like, especially in youth organizing work, like, if you can't relate to the folks that you're working with, then like, you shouldn't be the one running the organization. And so I will eventually age out um, of the work that we do. And, you know, for us, we want to build an organization that is stable, and can exist for the long term. And also, like, you know, we also want to build a leadership pipeline in our organization that makes it so that the folks who work at the organization and the folks who will eventually own whatever it becomes after us uh, are the people who are from the communities that we're looking to work with, so, yeah.
2: Well, it should come as a surprise to no one at this event that um, fundraising can be a problem. Mm -hmm. So in the course of your work, if you were to offer up, you know, a, a tip, a specific thing that you feel like you've learned along the way to folks who are attending, what would that be?
5: Um, I would like to jump in here. <laughs> <laughs> we I have so many thoughts on fundraising. We tried the traditional fundraising route. We are a nonprofit. Um, it does not work for me um, as many times as people have told me that it doesn't play out on an unequal power dynamic. That is a lie. Um, and like, I, I just don't think that 80% of my time should be spent trying to convince people that the idea works when it's working. And I also don't believe that I should have to use statistics that like bring a tear to the eye just because we're nonprofit. Um, so, but unfortunately we are a nonprofit and so till we switch our status, what I think should be something that you think about before you start anything for profit or non-profit or what are your revenue streams and like where can you have revenue coming in um, is there a way that you can sort of structure your organization to make it so that someone is paying for something mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that like you should have people who cannot afford to pay for what you're offering pay for it but <laughs> there is always a party that can pay for something and you have to identify that because i think it took us like 2 years longer to actually get started because we were so bent on trying the traditional fundraising route. And it's really not for everyone, especially when you're first starting, because you Mm -hmm. end up spending so much time just trying to build relationships. And if you don't have a fundraising person, you're gonna spend a lot of time doing that and not enough on actually building what you're building. And for us, we're at 100% logistics and operations. So there's pickups going on every minute of every day. And in the beginning, if I wasn't supervising that, then who is like, if our service is complete shit and I'm too busy trying to fundraise to keep it afloat, like it just doesn't make sense in my mind. And so we haven't had a donation dollar come in in like the last five years, but what we did start doing is convincing corporations who are scheduling these pickups to pay a fee that. so instead of paying a hauling fee for trash you would pay a donation fee you would get a tax write off for the donated food which is valued very high because catered food is valued very high and you get to positively brand yourself as like look goldman sachs is x company is now <laughs> <laughs> goldman, max. <laughs> <laughs> goldman max is now like a champion for environmental justice and um, food safety in their community, like so. Base so they are paying to donate free food, which is which was the biggest pushback that we got. But they're also getting a lot of other things for the payment that they're making. And you'd be surprised if you push a little bit what people are willing to pay for. And so, if the traditional fundraising route is not for you because it was not for me, um, then try and before you start figure out like who can pay for it and how you can have at least one revenue stream coming in so that even if you lose all your funders you have a little bit that can keep you afloat
4: (laughs) (laughs) um i would offer that i had a mentor here in dc actually she told me uh well she told me two things she said you're going very far and don't go very far without any money. (laughs) And I was like, well, girl, I don't got no money now. What you mean? (laughs) Um, But I'm always grateful that she taught me that. I think we have very different ideological beliefs, but um, her belief that trans women should have money was something that really stuck with me. And so, you know, as I approach building out an organization you know i did a lot of research so you know to kind of go back i did a lot of research about what was in the field but also what would we need to be as we enter into the field uh which you know is jargon and language that's used in nonprofit. but um one of the things that i was clear about is i wanted as much freedom as i could have as it related to money so um there's, you know, typically like operational general fund rate, like funds. And then there's uh, program specific. And so I made sure that our fundraising strategy was to go for as much general operating money as possible, because one of the things that doesn't exist in nonprofits is there is not a lot of resources that go into supporting people of color, specifically black organizations, sustain. And so there is a lack of funding around infrastructure for those organizations. So typically, those organizations absorb and obtain a lot of money responding to things, but not necessarily preparing or planning for the long term. And so the NAACP model, while it is a model, it is one of one. Uh, There's not many organizations that you can compare it to. The Marsha P. Johnson Institute, there are not many organizations that work for Black trans people that are working on economic justice issues or that are working on reproductive justice issues for Black trans people. So for me, it was really important that not only we had general operating funds, but that we also had money to hire people, not only because of the economic statement that we were making when numbers and statistics like $10,000 a year is the average salary for Black transgender people in America. So we weren't just trying to upend that, we were really just trying to up in that we have solutions. And in order for us to be able to provide the solutions to these statistics that funders and foundations love, we need to be able to hire people. And so um that's kind of where we are in process we're still building our infrastructure we launched last year so we're still a new organization which i'm enjoying the new but i think just one of the the long-term strategies also for me is that a five-year plan as soon as you create something i hope within your creation you have a five-year plan for your beginning your middle and then your end because you've got to move I think organizations stay stagnant when people are there for 10, 15 years, especially white people. There's no reason a white person should be in an organization for 10 to 15 years when you have essentially made, you know, most uh, high top tier orgs. People are making like, you know, $250,000 a year. So as we think about the economic gap in this country, I think is really important uh, for any person who is white, who is creating something to think about that move out of the way and even for myself i'm 32 i don't i think i'm 32 yeah i'm 32. (laughs) (laughs) my five-year plan i created this organization when i was 30 by the time i'm 35 i should have learned enough that i need to be moving on to something else but i think i say all of this because that also is a part of the infrastructure fundraising Mm -hmm. that you certainly want to be considering is am i putting this organization in a financial sound Plate so that in five years I can move on. Uh, one of the things about revenue streams, I think that's also really, really important for us because we are somewhat, actually, no, we are. We're a political organization who has uh, political beliefs that are not necessarily mainstream or affiliated with any particular uh, party. Uh, it is very difficult to obtain resources to do political work. And so that's one of the things where. You know for us as an organization that is anti-capitalist we also struggle around what other revenue streams do we choose so we try to do our best to create relationships with partners that have shared beliefs as opposed to just taking money from any organization or company that throws it at us so you know i think the values of your company the values of your organization are certainly what you have to consider in your fundraising strategy also
6: yeah, um, I think I'm mean, going to echo y'all. I think hit it on the head when we talk about revenue streams, right? And, and the succession plan or the exit plan. Um, for me, I founded Radical Health, and we are a benefit corp. So we didn't go the nonprofit route. Um, and a lot of that was I wanted to do good work, but I also wanted to have to create generational wealth for my family, for my community, for other folks, and be intentional about that. Um, and I think that, like, you know, they've already said, I think everything that needs to be said, but the one thing that I'll say is like, sometimes we start organizations and we want to give back. And we're all about how can we give back? What I would challenge you to think about is what can, how can you give up, right? And giving up a power. Um, and so whether that is, right, what we do is we give up education so that folks are empowered and they can kind of take this on. And if I'm successful, radical health does not need to exist. Um, but I'd say the same thing in terms of, leadership in terms of, you know, doing good, Hannah, you talk about, right, like giving up actual dollars that could be in your pocket, but to your drivers, right? And how do we start to give up to make a difference and really look at power, um, and, and those structures um, in our work?
3: I'll just say one thing, we only raise political money. Um, so we don't get any money from foundations, um, or like traditional like nonprofit entities. Um, the only thing I'll say on fundraising is, if if you don't want to fundraise, then don't, don't be a founder. Like, (laughs) truthfully, like, it's hard, and it sucks. And honestly, (laughs) it's demeaning. And oftentimes demoralizing. There's a lot of terrible things that are associated with fundraising, Um, especially the kind of fundraising, like, we basically are just rely on like rich people and like grassroots donations, like those are our two revenue streams. Um, And so The power imbalance there is real and you will have to do things that you don't want to do and it will not feel good. So if you don't want to do it, then go be like a managing director or like someone that you like really believe in. That's you should all start your own things and like fundraising is a part of the job
2: and it's terrible. As I as I think
3: about
6: <laughs>
2: as I think about the terms demeaning, so demeaning and demoralizing, I want to go back to so the it. point of this panel is not <laughs> is not to go and say you shouldn't start up a thing. It's just having realistic expectations. Like yes. that are, the whole focus of it is like what does it really mean to do a thing? And some of you are probably experiencing some of these things already. Um, So to go into the next thing that might be slightly demeaning and demoralizing, uh, one of the other things that I I know that I've spoken with all of you about uh, has to do with staffing, has to do with finding talent and a particular challenge of finding talent. Um, Very often, um, it could be paid staff and the challenge of paid staff and of finding people who believe in the mission, who are driven the same way that you are. Um, and also I would extend that as well to advisors. So can you share a little bit about what you've learned or experienced when it comes to bringing on paid staff members or advisors that would be fruitful for other folks to know?
6: It's hard, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll just say like, I have this whole thing and I, you know, we want to pay people equitably. I want to pay people well. I don't have a very big budget to pay, right, the $125,000 that I think everyone deserves annually. Um, so then we find, you know, the, then, you know, we have folks <laughs> who can afford to work for free or for very little, but are so far removed, right, from the work that we're doing and understanding the cause, right, because there's a level of privilege. Like, if you don't need a salary, then great, but like, then you're not understanding. Then I have folks, right, who I want to hire, who are from the community who I think would Kill it and have the passion and get it the way I do, but like they have a whole family to feed and you know other families and whatnot. And so it is the hardest. It is the hardest thing to do. Then we hire folks, um, you know, and and it's a combination and you know getting folks to come on and not. And so I don't know. I, I don't have a solution aside from. Um, <laughs> I don't really have a solution um, aside from though. I will say on the advisor piece and Russ has been great at this. Is is having. Having folks who can who can who can advise, making sure that they understand, you know, you're as vulnerable as you can be, and you choose to be with like the realities, the challenges, and even some of like you know my blind spots, but also my concerns. So I'm always having this concern about like you know, the white man on my team. Like, do we bring him on? Can this be all you know POC led? You know, black and and then it is it is just always a challenge. And if y'all have advice, I'll take it. <laughs>
5: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've gone through a lot of people. Um, Just because we're in that phase where... I can pay a very high hourly rate, but I can't pay for a full time person. And so it's it's difficult to find a person who can take out the number of hours that I need them to take out during the week while balancing their other part time job. Mm-hmm. And so until I can pay full time I realistically am not going to get the kind of candidate that I need. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's just difficult finding like and then you hire someone and it turns out like they're not the person that you thought or like the they don't work in the way that you thought they would work <laughs> and it's just an absolute <laughs> but like it's so yeah. i have made much use of using 1099s like a lot of contractors because you have to date the person before you marry them like you can't just have a full-time person come on if you don't know if if you're gonna work well together and so i made the mistake of marrying many people before dating so now i only do i've realized that you know it's okay if we work with 1099s so they put in a lot of hours we get the job done we're a very lean team we're all remote and we work we're in th- three states now so it's it's fine like we're working um so it's it might not look like the traditional team that i thought but like i think we'll we'll get there eventually but for now like i feel like it's like just. You don't have to have a huge team like even if it's just two people and you're working well then then you're working well like I think there's a lot of pressure to feel like I need to have a team and like people like have like I need a media person but like do I really need <laughs> a full-time social media person like probably not like we don't do that much marketing and we're doing fine so I think like you kind of work with what you can, like what you have and the budget that you have until you reach a point where we, where maybe your budget's bigger than
4: date and then get married mm-hmm. yeah. Um I love this question actually, because uh, it is a shit show. And uh, you know, I hate it. Also, I think one of the things that I've learned you though don't
2: hate it. You haven't met the right person. It's a process. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no.
4: I hate the process. I hate. I, I, I hate dating. The, I hate dating. Yeah. I love the process, <laughs> but I also hate. The, it's a love hate relationship. There's and love in there. There is there's lots of love, there. but there's a lot of hate. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, God, I mean, there's so many places to start. I think you both like encapsulate it a lot. I think um, I have so many thoughts around this just because it is is—it's probably like one of the main parts of, of your job as a founder is finding the right team. Um, oh, God, I've tried a lot of different things, you know. Uh, so one of the things that I think is really important generally in life, but also in your work is you have to be committed to failing more than you are winning.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And, um, you know, as someone who likes to win, you know, like even at the space table, I'll stab you. Uh, <laughs> it's as I can. Um, losing is so hard for me. I take it so personal and um, it makes me so sad. Um, but you know, I tried many things with creating my organization, and I'm still trying many things. And I think I'm at the end of kind of like the year two learnings. Mm -hmm. Um, I set out to create one, an all black trans board, because I had never seen that before. Mm -hmm. I had never seen an organization have like an all transgender group of people, but black people. And so I thought that was a good idea. Uh, Not that I still don't think it's a good idea. There were just things that I knew would come up. I just didn't know they would come up. Um, And so I'll just start there. It's just you have to have a lot of patience with a community of people who have been disenfranchised from so much um, because you're not going to get the outcomes that you desire immediately. Um, And I think I'm in the place of Am I not getting the, 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 the results that I desired, or is this just not working? You know, how, how, how much longer do I stay patient versus I want to win when I want to win? Um, so that's one part of just like a structural challenge that exists. Um, staffing, you know, uh, God is good. Uh, You know, so Uh, consultants are great. Uh, It gives you an opportunity to have a tryout. It's like speed dating. It's like, let me give you a 30-day contract. We'll give you a 90-day contract. Um, I tried that as an experiment to see what results would I get. And so I hired Two people from my community who I knew very well, or (laughs) I thought I did, and it was the worst. Mm, I don't want to say worst because it was. I loved it. It was. It taught me a lot. I learned to love what I learned, Uh, but going through it was really hard because I was like, huh. You know, I had one staff person who was trying to take me through what they thought was leadership development, but that's not what they were hired to do for me. And so it was like, who are you in this space? Like, what are you doing? Um, And then I had someone who just didn't do anything. Uh, Just didn't do anything for, I don't know, about nine months. Oh, no. But I was okay with it because I was like, I feel better about investing in an opportunity for us all to learn together as Black trans women as opposed to there would be no other space that would allow this type of inactivity without it being penalized or uh, reflective of our penal system. So for me, it was an experiment that I had to take in order to get clear about how I could be a better manager, how I could be a better founder, how I could be a better executive director. So I was really grateful for that. Um, Fast forward, one of the things that I learned around marginalized communities, as was already stated, it's very hard to support people who have to find multiple means of income to support themselves. So back to fundraising. One of my strategies has been I'm actually not hiring anyone if I can't hire them beyond a contract. Mm -hmm. So if I hire you for 90 days and I don't have the funding to keep you on past that 90 days, then we can't actually... Um, pursue that work. And that is one of the things that I will say is infrastructure building for a new company or a new organization is really unheard of. Well, unless you're rich and you got a lot of money, you can do whatever you want because it's just different when you have $50 million and you only have $5,000. It's very, very different. Um, So that is like the low tier of um, I think most startup black organizations. Um, but one of the things that I think is just really important is um, you're not going to be able to do all of your work. Like you were saying, like, oh, we don't need a PR person. Or we don't need a comps person. Uh, maybe not now, but in your five to 10 year strategy, you should probably have that built in because your work is going to grow and you're going to need more legs, more strength to support the work and being able to articulate about the work right now kind of doing everything. So I'm doing PR, I'm doing comms, I'm doing, you know, leadership development, I'm doing fundraising. But one of the things that I think was important when I created it was (laughs) the Marsha P Johnson Institute really came from, like, probably maybe three years of notes, just me taking notes about different things that I would see like, well, this person didn't. Well, this group didn't. And so I turned those notes. Typically, you all know, concept (laughs) notes are very important. I had a 20 page concept note um, by the time that I compiled all of my notes and I had submitted it for our first fundraising, like our first funding application. And The funder sent it back and said, this is very (laughs) expensive. You know, this is a 10 to 15 year plan. We just want it like for this year. So one thing that I will always say is always never feel like you're putting too much thought into what you're creating. Um, but definitely think about staffing your org or your new business as a part of that, because you know a ten to fifteen year plan meant that there were ten to fifteen year um, employment opportunities that needed to be considered. So, yeah, it's 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 always going to be a shit show, though. I will say that. Um, and maybe
2: that's not the thing to say, so I'll be quiet. No, no, I will correct for all of your comments after, you, after Ross, you've made your comment. I yes. have one thing, which is fire fast.
3: Yes. yes. Firing people's a kindness. Um, we don't talk it's about not. it enough. I
1: know.
3: It feels so shitty to fire people. Like, it's the worst. It is the worst part, po- it is worse worst in fundraising
1: Um,
3: (laughs) and fundraising is a really terrible part of the job. Um, Um, I was like, I don't know if I thought
1: of, I don't know.
3: Firing people is just terrible. It doesn't feel good. Like there's nothing good about it. Um, but it's necessary. Sometimes people just aren't a good fit for their role. Or sometimes people outgrow the role they're in and the organization has nowhere else for them to go. Or like sometimes the role that they were filling at the very beginning, isn't the right role Mm -hmm. isn't the right fit for them three or four years into the organization's development you know like what you need when you're a startup is like at the very beginning is different than what you need five years in
4: i'll talk about it
3: it's and it's yeah it sucks um i think and before i mean russ knows we've He's been very helpful. He's <laughs> so all, right. right. all of our texts, All of our
6: tears in text. Russ catches them all. Noticed
3: yeah, that i correct after <laughs> all Russ knows too much. <laughs> Russ probably knows too much. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's not just firing. It's also, like, catching conversations early with people as you begin to see, like, okay, this person doesn't seem happy anymore. Mm-hmm. And, like, is there actually something I can do to make them happy? And if the answer is no then like starting to have those conversations early so that you don't end up in a place where like they just like up and like peace out like you know at like literally the least opportune time which Mm -hmm. is like if you let that happen they will just up and peace out Mm -hmm. at the least opportune time and there's nothing wrong with you know like it's a rational decision from their perspective and and they don't probably mean you any harm and like it can be really challenging so i think like having more conversations about coaching people out, firing, things like that. I think, you know, I don't have enough people to talk to about it. So like Russ just like hears about it all the time. (laughs) We haven't had to fire that many people, but like when you do, it just sucks. Anyway, so that's the thing I would just that's like, I think the hardest part of the hiring process is the end. But this is not
2: an inconsistent Uh, perspective from founders (laughs) and part of it is just very short staffed and they want to focus on mission and they want to have someone who's just gonna come in learn quickly do a great job and let them do more and Mm -hmm. a bad hire is an emotional sucks time your emotional capacity you're disappointed so it's and oftentimes the hiring process that they have early stage or that you may have early stage is not particularly well thought out, so folks can get in. Who, if you had been more deliberate, might not have made it through a process like that. Um, okay, well, let's go to something. Let's go to a different kind of bad thing <laughs> in the life of being <laughs> a founder. Um, what if we so sure, yeah. this as well? This is Good being partner. a public person. So, for many people, actually, one of the sort of interesting things is for many people there is a desire in some part because I want to be in um, you know front of the stage, having people listen to me talk about a thing. And I want to talk a little bit more about what it means. <laughs> You're not supposed to be shaking your head to know. No. Yet. <laughs> but talk a little bit more about like what it means to, feel, to to be representing an organization, to be a founder in public and what it means to you know to have to carry that with you in the day to day professionally in any order. If someone is feeling more hopeful or positive, they could start, but I'm not going um, to expect that. So just go ahead.
6: I'll, I'll start. I'm hopeful. Okay. This is the positive.
2: Okay.
6: Um, <laughs> there you go. I think, I, just, I didn't get into this to be on stage and to be on green couches and like have a platform at all. Um, but what I will say is, I have a few like just guiding principles um, in being this public piece or public person. Um, one is like I have to speak authentically for a long time. Um, in my real life, I've had to code switch, so I can straighten my hair, show up, you know, at the office, and enunciate on my words and be very polite. And then I'm like on the block with my cousins and my friends, and it's a very different. I mean, it's not. It's very, very different still. Um, and for me, it was like, how can I be authentic and honestly show who I am at all times, and and make sure that I'm rep- actually being rep- like representation for folks. I never had a role model that looked like me, that talked like me, that showed up you know, like this um, to places. And so being this per- public persona, it is my duty and my responsibility to show that like you can be this and you can be your full self. I also have like a commitment to speaking truth to power. Um, so if you look at me and speaking online, I'm constantly calling out racism and structural bias and racism. I mean, I'm just going for it and centering the experience of folks who have been marginalized. So black, brown, indigenous, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus. And so in that though, there is a weight that, that comes with it. Um, you know, I'm fearful, and <laughs> this is like worst case scenario, but like, you know, I have a young child at home. So I'm always mindful of like not putting him on social media and making sure that I create like a private space for myself and to exist. Um, but at the core of it all, it is just like I lead with truth, authenticity, and I will constantly come up against power and speak truth to that, and also just honor the folks that have come before me that have allowed me to do that and kind of set the model too, um, especially today where you can be vocal, I can speak my truth, um, but also like know that in that speaking of truth and that in this role there's a bit of protection <coughs> and and power that comes from it. So huh? that's a, that's the positive. <laughs> Okay, now let's go to Hannah. I think I am gonna say something positive <laughs> about it. I, I obviously didn't do this to
5: be on stage, but um I think the cool part about it is that like a lot of the time, like at least when I first started, like you don't see founders that look like you a lot of the time. And like what you see when you go into a room you're expected to sort of act a certain way and speak a certain way and sound like you know exactly what you're talking about. And the majority of founders that I have mingled with, because we're in the tech space, have been white guys. And so I think it's it's a I. I like it because it kind of shows people that like you don't have to talk, like I have a stutter so I'll get on stage and start like da 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 like stuttering a lot of the time and I'm like, you know what, it's just like part of my speech and I've never seen another founder who gets up on stage and stutters and so I'm like, I'm gonna get up there and I'm gonna stutter. Mm-hmm. And so like just things where like I don't like networking or like being on the floor and if you put me in a room full of people, I'm probably not gonna be <laughs> meekly, I'm probably gonna be in the bathroom or the, or the coat room or somewhere else <laughs> where it's it's a like I think, having a platform has it it allows you to tell other people that it's okay to be that kind of a founder as well like you don't have to be the person in the suit with the business card who knows like exactly what to say and how to get the money because as i said like i i don't know how to get the fundraising money still and i've been doing this for 5 years and so i think what the platform has given me is just access to letting other people know and it kind of boost like bolsters your own self-confidence that like I still did this like everything that this organization is like I did that and like I don't have to like get up on stage and pretend to give one of those keynotes that are really boring and no one listens to. Like I can like give my own kind of a keynote where like you kind of make jokes and forget things and just, and that's also a founder. It's, it's a person who's successful, who's achieved something, who's raised a lot, not even raised a lot of money, who's like earned a lot of money from something that they've created and looks a way that you wouldn't expect them to. And I kind of like the shock value of that.
1: <laughs>
4: Uh, woo, um, you know, (laughs) uh, this is such a hard question for me. Um, you know, I emerged into the spotlight, uh, when something that was so important and so large and, uh, so monumental was also emerging. And so, um, I tried to hide in it as long as I could. But I think who I was stood out. um, And I tried to protect myself as much as I could uh, and still do. So I often shy away from uh, just talking about certain things. But, um, uh, you know, as it relates to the organization, I think one thing that sticks out to me is just the constant concern around making one mistake. Um, And I think, you know, we see people make mistakes and sometimes they're held accountable and sometimes they're not, but what I have noticed is that there's just a deep level of anti-blackness that um, is associated not just with black people but uh, specifically with black trans women. And so the mistakes that society is able to make, we're not able to necessarily make those mistakes or have opinions that are outside of popular ones. And so um, because I am associated with something so large, I do constantly feel like there are always eyes on me. Um, And that's a challenge, that is a challenge because it definitely makes you feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having a visit from the FBI because of my work makes me feel unsafe. Um, and so, of course, there's the, the part of it that makes me feel inspired and empowered that people would listen to anything that I have to say. Um, but then there's also this this piece of uh, safety that I think is a constant concern for people who look like me and come from the hoods and ghettos that mm-hmm. I come from in this country. but. Um, I think one of the other things that happens is because you are representing a community or there's a community that aspires to do what you're doing. Um, now, this is Russ hears about this a lot. There's a lot of flattening of your expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of flattening of your knowledge, and there's a lot of flattening of your achievements. And so I find myself um, being challenged and having competitors that I don't consider that way. (laughs) Um, and so there's this unspoken competitiveness that shows up oftentimes in my community because of the platform that I have. Um, and I think the desire that people who really don't have what I have now, um, want to get themselves out of. And so they see this as being a vehicle for maybe how they can have more. And so, you know, for me, that has uh, been a challenge in my organization and outside of it, uh, because I just come to this work as literally a girl who was homeless and from jail. So I didn't come into this, you know, wanting to be uh, known or To have a random wikipedia page with really uh untrue facts about me uh that wasn't why i did it um so yeah i struggle a lot i think um you know one thing that i think is important is just to accept the assignment um and sometimes we have no idea what our assignment is until we're like bitch, I'm going to get an F on this test. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, you start to reorganize your answers. You start to reorganize the information (laughs) that you store so that you don't fail. But, you know, one of the ways that you'll never fail, I think, is to just accept your assignment. Um, And so that's what I constantly am trying to do, despite the difficult challenges, despite uh, the competitive forces that exist that I don't even consider... To be my peers or my equals. Um, but yeah, just, just accept the assignment. I think there's so much more that I could say, <laughs> but I won't.
3: I don't think I have anything else
2: unique to add here. Okay.
3: Um
4: <laughs> great. So that aside,
2: uh I know uh I'm always curious about how given the kind of pressure you have as a founder. Um, how you attempt to ensure balance in terms of your relationships, um, friendships, romantic, familial, those kinds of things. How do you attempt to manage those kinds of things, and just overall, like what do you do as uh, self-care?
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> I
3: I can I have stuff to say yeah. on this. Sure, say it. <laughs> um... So my partner also works in this space and she's also very busy. Uh, as a matter of fact, she's like gone for like the next two weeks. Um, so um, I think we've both sort of like chosen like this like life. Um, I think the thing that we is the hardest is the intentionality piece. Um, like we're both always tired. We're both like mostly angry all the time. Um, and we both work in the same space, which I think is like maybe like a, is a little bit unique. Um, so like a lot of our conversation is actually about, a lot of our personal conversations also about work. Um, we also both work from home when she's home. so we also hear each other talking about work all day on the phone, um, and I think the 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 piece that we found that works is that like we need to have extraordinarily clear ways of communicating with each other, um, which means that like we need to actually create process in our relationship around how we communicate because we uh, if we don't. Uh, then it's really easy to fall out of balance Um, and it's really easy to like get angry with each other or mad because like someone like didn't walk the dog for three weeks but then they come back from like a grueling trip and they don't want to walk the dog and the person who is home is like well I've been walking the dog like four times a day for three weeks it's your turn so you know (laughs) and those are really small things but i think like it spans everything because like when you do this work i think the thing that i sort of find is like an overriding feeling is like i feel exhausted all the time Mm -hmm. like emotionally physically like every way that is possible to be exhausted and i think if we're not being intentional about the way we're talking to each other about how we're spending our time then like We let life happen. And when life happens is like when you fall out of relationship and communication. So I think that's been I think the thing that we've learned, I think it's different. I think that is different for everyone. What communication looks like. I think the one thing we are lucky about is that we both understand the demands of each other's job. um, And so we do give one another sort of like the grace like associated with it. It's like, yes, I know you're really tired and that's like why you didn't do that thing. or like, why we didn't get each other gifts like for, you know, like a birthday or something like that, you know, like, um, and I think everything about it is about communication. Uh, And then last year we said that we were gonna say yes to friends, um, which meant that when we were really exhausted and really tired and did not want to talk to anyone and people invited us out. We were like, fuck it, we're going out and we're going to go see our friends and we're going to invest in our friendships again. And that's actually been one of the most rewarding things Mm -hmm. that I think that and we both agree with this. So like that either one of us have done in the last year, which includes our work, is just like reinvesting in friends. So like I would just say, even when you don't want to do it and it feels so hard, I would say, like, just say yes because like those relationships will give you like more
2: value than like you can imagine. Although when we were out dinner, you brought up names, and the two of you were discussing is that someone who we are gonna put the time aside for to see? Right? <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember that. So you were just like, well, did they make the cut of oh. like I think what's You're important, very mindful of I that. think what's important to us is that you made the cut. I always make the cut.
4: Oh, I always make the cut. There is something going on. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Think <laughs> um, I think that the power of saying no has actually been <laughs> so good for me. Um, I spent a lot of time saying yes all the time to uh, my family, to my friends, to romantic partners. Um, and one thing that I was noticing, I was like, I'm getting a lot of yeses back. What is what is going on? Um, and I think there was just this instinct to like give everything because I was giving so much to my work. Mm-hmm. So it was carrying over into my personal life. So saying no has been such a, a gift to me Um, But one thing I am learning to do is to say yes to myself. So that means I might be late for a meeting if I'm going to go get my nails done because that's necessary. Um, Or I might be late to a speaking engagement because I needed to get an extra hour of sleep. Um, You know, so I think it's really just finding the balance within yourself and also just creating some very clear boundaries and I, I struggle I'm a Gemini so I struggle very greatly with boundaries. I mm-hmm. like to try to do everything and then I get bored easily so then people get mad at me. Mm-hmm. Um but then I think there's also this thing where I think um I just don't want to have any relationship with anyone who is associated with my work. So I'm like I want you to be completely so far removed from Nonprofits, organizing, (laughs) politics. I I actually don't even want you to have an opinion
1: on that. (laughs) I want you to not care. Um, It's it's like
4: I spend 60 hours uh, a a week, you know, like doing this work. And so it's like, I need to have a space that is just for me, that is just completely disconnected. So Mm -hmm. I find myself actually wanting to reinvest in friendships but not actually in any of the friends that I have. <laughs> like, I'm like, give me new people uh, who are completely different than I am, but also completely different than what my day-to-day consists of. They just gotta make the cut. <laughs> Honey, no, we're doing it's new, we're doing tryouts. <laughs> new friends, all right. Tryouts, yes. <laughs>
5: well, I'm a Pisces, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tell you. i I'm very serious <laughs> about work-life balance. I don't, like, when I, well, I work from home now, which we used to have a workspace, but now I work from home, so I'm double as serious about it, where I do not want to talk about work After 7 p.m. Like I will not discuss it at all regardless of who it's with my fiance my parents We will not talk about work and they know that we're like don't like if if something happens I'll tell you otherwise just think that we're still trucking along We're just doing the thing and I think it's really helpful because otherwise when do you stop thinking about it? like from the time Mm -hmm. you wake up to the time you go to sleep like it has been since I moved to New York it has been the thing that I've been doing and I don't want to wake up and go to sleep thinking about food waste or garbage or (laughs) like what it is that we're doing like and I think another thing that like a lot of people have stopped doing that I recently discovered again is hobbies Mm -hmm. and having things to do outside of your job Um, because we I don't know for some reason I seem to think that if it's not contributing to my career or I can't monetize it then it's not worth doing (laughs) Um, which is a really bad way to think but a lot of people think that way and we've stopped doing things just because like it's what you want to do and so i started doing a ton of stuff after work like taking improv classes and like doing stand up stand up secretly and like things like that that just really (laughs) i keep i Okay, but I tell everyone just not where it is. But just, <laughs> and I've noticed that like no one gives a shit what my job is here. Yeah. Like they don't care if I'm successful at it, if I'm bad at it, all they care is if I'm funny or not, or if <laughs> I'm a good improviser, which is so refreshing because it has nothing to do with anything that I spend the first 16 hours of my day doing. Exactly. And I think it's important to have those things that have nothing to do with your job, <laughs> or like you don't have to talk to people if you don't want to, but just having things to do that are stuff that. That, like you like to do because i doubt that any of us like every single aspect of our job it mostly just makes us angry um and i don't think that we should continue discussing that after we get home and so mm-hmm. i think like having just like a strict like this is my cutoff. i'm not going to talk about it after this i'm not going to touch my laptop if i have to do anything i'm going to write it down on a notepad and do it tomorrow like i'm mm-hmm. not even going to open my phone to <laughs> do it but um i think having those boundaries has really really helped um because otherwise it has like an effect on your health and Mm -hmm. like your like stress can really just do a number on you and so having those boundaries is super important i think
6: i love it um I so Hannah you inspired me to have hobbies so we talked <laughs> last year and I was like this is my year of hobbies I haven't committed to anything yet but check on me in March and I have a list of things that I'm gonna start doing oh I'll do it with you um, yeah, yay yeah, yeah. um but I think for me I mean I'm a founder I'm a partner and I'm a mom so i have a five-year-old and um the good thing about a five-year-old is that it's like a built-in structure like the other day i was heading to an event it was a very fancy event like it was a it was actually a jeffersonian dinner um by like candlelight the whole day and so i was like ready and before i'm heading out my kid is like well i need you to read me a book and i'm like well i'm late you gotta call the uber he was like no 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 i need a story um and so i had to like stop and read the book and it's like just built-in pauses a lot more work to do but that helps and um in the area of balance what i'm finding is there's a lot of you know self-care like you know manicure massage but for me really i've been doing like discipline has been the best thing so when it's like time blocking my calendar um so that you know i'm like blocking out my drop off when i have to take my kids to school like nothing will get scheduled in that time and blocking out time for lunch every day on my calendar, I have an hour blocked out for lunch, and really being disciplined, um, which doesn't come natural. I'm a Scorpio, so I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah. Oh, same. You're a Scorpio too. <laughs> oh, yay! What do um, these things mean? We'll Find out later. <laughs> they mean uh, something. You're in between, yeah. Um, instead of two instead of two ferns, you have two Scorpios. Um, but I think that uh, yeah, like uh, just really being disciplined and and caring for myself with some structure, whereas everywhere else, like I can give structure to everyone else, but like doing that for myself is one of the ways I try to keep balance.
2: So one thing. Oh yeah, sure. Therapy.
6: Oh yeah.
3: I go to therapy once a week and my insurance pays, I found someone who had my insurance. I'm lucky to have insurance. (laughs) Mental health (laughs) is really important. Like I struggle with depression. I have like struggled with an eating disorder, like all sorts of shit if you like i find this with my staff like my staff will come to me with stuff and they're like i'm like yo that's for your therapist like <laughs> i don't say that out loud but like <laughs> i'm like like i can't help you i can't help you with i i'm not qualified to help you with that um but like it's really i say i would just say prioritizing mental health is extremely important
1: mm-hmm. that's
2: so it probably won't surprise you to know this, but we've gone very long.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, Longish.
2: I'm, I'm okay with asking questions but actually following time instructions.
0: So we we built good. in a break and then we and then we took up so so, took up the break. Oh so they uh, <laughs> uh the <process laughs> no is, is supposed to be to beginning in just a few moments start here. Start whenever we could uh, and just keep in mind that Russ is going to run a mentorship workshop in just a couple minutes. So well, I think we can uh, take do. awesome. a Don't great. ask a question about mentorship. <laughs> <laughs> Russ is going to run a mentorship workshop in just a couple minutes. But if you have, uh, I think we, we could take one. You
2: could cover any minutes. other category but that, because that's. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Yeah, if, does anyone
7: have? I have a question. Yeah, first of all, um, I really like the diversity that I'm seeing right now. It's really inspiring. And it's, I feel like empowered by behind the scenes stories that you're telling us. And I feel like it's uh, relatable, and real, and honest. And thank you so much. And um, my question is, uh, you're talking about um, failures, right? And what if? Uh, when do you know you have to stop? Or when do you know you have to get back up again? <laughs>
4: uh, you know, I think for me at the beginning it was like it was hard to know when I was failing because it was so new, so I, I I didn't know I was failing. Now I know within yeah. <laughs> I know very quickly. I, I know very and I probably, I'd say less than a week. Um, mm. you know, if we try a campaign or if we and and As it relates to the work, I don't think there's any failing. Like if you do a campaign and you only get two likes on digital or whatever, you know, you make five impressions. I don't think there's, I don't think there's failure in the work. I think you have to constantly try. Um, Failing in terms of relationships is very different. I think, um, you know, I That's a hard one. I think it really just depends. It's kind of circumstantial, but I also think it's just like, if you've had a history with someone, and luckily I've had a lot of history with a lot of people, which is probably part of the problem. um, The failing is something you notice. It's just a matter of how soon are you gonna address that it feels like it's failing. And sometimes, you know, we'll stay sinking. And so, yeah, I, I think I knew very quickly and I think I held on to some relationships that I needed to let go of because I was afraid that if I let go of those relationships, then that mean, means I had failed as opposed to like, this has been failing and now this is seeping into the work, which is, you know.
6: And I, wanna just, and I think yeah. there's a difference between like failing and, a, and pivoting, right? Yes. And so for me, I mean, in terms of the work, if you have an idea, I'd say you keep going, right? Like whatever that is, I mean, until your soul knows like, it's enough but then there's something about pivoting so if you're trying something right i started radical health when we started we were going to be a tech company mm-hmm. i didn't get funding so i had to switch like hosting these conversations mm-hmm. then we're doing the conversations and then we got enough money that i could then do the tech again mm-hmm. um and in the tech right we were switching we were going to go sell to somebody but there was a senator who had a dui and the funding didn't get passed <laughs> <laughs> and so now we're like, all right crap we're gonna go straight to consumer and we're gonna go straight to the market and so there's a big difference between like, I mean, to the extent like in the work, like you can pivot. And so don't be afraid if you have an idea that you're gonna, you know, do one thing and it grows and changes over time, that's just pivoting and that's allowed. And I welcome that to everyone, like pivot fast, like find traction, look where the fruit is, look where the funding is, look where people are saying yes. Like when you talk and you say, people are like, oh yeah, even if it's $3 that they give you, like follow that and let that kind of be your guide. And also like always trust your gut always and one
4: really quickly shift like pivot but shift i was working at an organization it was here in dc we won't name who those people were but i told them hey you might want to make me the executive director of this organization they refused to actually make that transition within the organization so now my organization exists and theirs doesn't. So mm-hmm. when people are offering yeah. you opportunities to shift based on what they know about funding, what they know about where the areas of opportunity are, never be afraid to not only pivot, but completely shift mm-hmm. the entire structure of something that you're thinking about doing.
5: Yeah, and mm-hmm. just to, sorry, just to add like one last thing. I think you, in this space, you just keep getting up until you decide that you're done. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. cause there may be a time where you, like for me, I know that there's a limit to how far that we can take this. Like yeah. you said as well, there's a limit to the number of years that you're gonna spend. And it's okay to have that. So like don't, if it's like, a, if it's like you not getting funding or things like that, then you keep getting up if you still wanna do it. But if you decide that like, you know what? I wanna hand it off or my talents would be better used somewhere else. But don't do it because of a failure, but because like you feel like, you know what? This is my time, yeah. I think and and you'll know when that
2: is. I think very often founders do this thing where they're saying that they're starting up something, but they never actually do anything. Mm. <laughs> so they'll go and they'll continue saying like, I know, I know, right? You're I'm, doing, I'm doing, doing the thing, but they never actually have goals set up that show that cr- allow them to create a notion of momentum. And I'd yeah. say that if you have a set of things like that that help you to believe like build confidence in yourself to do the thing, show that there's momentum. Like I think the more you can have some of those things to start, usually that builds then a sense of confidence in yourself and allows you to say, well, I had some goals. I'm not doing any of these things in support of that. Why is that? And kind of take a step back and try to answer that question. Oh.
0: Oh. Uh, let's do we'll, do we'll do two more questions uh, yes you do those are the hands or, you do question know. Know. But there's there's a workshop right after this hopefully some of the folks are sticking around we still get a chance to talk but okay. so my question, there, uh,
7: relates to how do you manage uh gatekeepers both gatekeepers outside our communities and gatekeepers inside our communities that sort of risen to a certain level of uh status they now consider themselves gatekeepers whether they're in community of color or not
4: I feel like I keep giving very long answers. So I'm like, I don't want to respond, but I feel like I have to. Um, That is something that is inevitable in the work, especially (laughs) it's just depending on how big your work gets. um, That's just something, you know, and maybe Ress can maybe talk about what it's like to found something with other people, because sometimes the people you found something with become gatekeepers. Um, and that in itself is a huge struggle because you're not only fighting about resources, but you're also fighting around like the fundamental vision and the principles and the goals. So, you know, for me, it was just to create something on my own where I didn't have to have those kind of fights with anyone that we could stay completely clear. So, I would just say never be afraid to create something on your own. If it's something that you believe in, it will surpass any of the gatekeeping that people think they're doing against you.
6: Yeah, uh, so gates have many holes in them and many other entrances. <laughs> so go under, around, I mean, I see this all the time in community and outside. So someone who thinks they're in power, but they forget the admins and the people on the ground and people who hold space in community and forget that like, I really believe in community organizing as a power and people mm. power. So pull whoever you can, whoever says no, that's fine. Let them keep saying no, they'll be so busy doing that. They won't see you come around the back.
3: People, people, gatekeepers are always accountable to a set of individuals, whether it's a set of community members or it's a donor or a set of donors. If a gatekeeper is a problem, I've always found, and this is something I even tell our candidates when we're working with them around endorsements and things like that, go to the people that they're accountable to Mm -hmm. and organize those people.
4: And if you don't know who they're accountable to, which is often the case once you get into the nitty-gritty of community organizing, everybody has a boss. Sometimes people's bosses are silent and you have no idea they're working together, you stay focused on your plow. Just stay Mm -hmm. on your plow so that you don't have no squigglies, because sometimes you won't even know who people are accountable to and that's just the nature of the game.
7: Um, my question had to do with more of uh, sustainability in regards to um, starting off organizations. Um, a lot of the time, we're always in the mindset of giving, and so we kind of forget about ourselves in that. And so my question to you guys is how are you, um, especially if you're doing this full time, then factoring in um, how you take care of yourselves, like in regards to like finances and, um, you know, having a family or having some loans or whatever responsibilities you guys may have. How are you um, factoring, whether it's through fundraising or through grants, like how to then take care of yourself?
5: Mm. Well, I guess when you're first starting, definitely date before you marry, whatever it is that you're starting. Like, it's just, I, I don't know. I think you never want to jump like always like take the risk, but don't jump headfirst into anything without thinking about finances because you're not going to go very far. Okay. And like it's it's good to I think it's so well, what I did. So this started in college and then when I graduated, it was either like work on this or like take the consulting job. And so what um, so what I ended up doing was working part time at like a vintage store mm-hmm. so I could like pay for my apartment while this was still, still sort of starting up. Because
1: oh, get those boots there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> when you see, see us year. next time, we're gonna have a we've, boots. We've been out waiting boots. for five <laughs> years now.
5: I can get the boots. <laughs> but um, yeah, but just definitely think about like, because if you can't, if you're stressed about like making money for yourself when you're first starting, it's gonna be really difficult for you to focus on what it is that you're trying to build. And so I think I would definitely recommend like try and monetize off of any sort of skills that you have like if you can do graphic design then do it on the side if you like i didn't really have any of those types of skills that's why i ended up working at the store opposite my apartment (laughs) because it was like close and i could be on my laptop there but just anywhere where you can get a job that like pays an amount that you can subsist off of while it's still growing is is super helpful in terms of the very beginning of of anything
7: and now like now that you do have the money, how do you? Because I'm assuming you don't work the but no. 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 They fired me. Yeah. Oh, they. It's not a good mm. point. <laughs> I think the laptop
5: on the table was too much. Oh <laughs> yeah.
7: So now that they do, how do you then factor in? Like, okay, this is how much you know, you're gonna take out of this or make it, out of it. So you
5: know. it was gradual. I started with the amount that I needed to live. So it was like a very, very little bit. And then as we started making more, covering all of our bases, I was like, okay, like, like how much of like, what percentage of the work am I doing? And so you give yourself like a fair wage. Like if you're doing everything, then you should pay yourself for everything that you're doing. Like everything that someone else, like you would hire like another person to do. So if I'm doing comms, I'm going to give myself a cut of whatever I would give the comms person because I'm doing it. And so it's like, Definitely like if you're doing the work then pay yourself for the work yeah. and I think that's, that's really important where you don't have to keep yourself at a minimum wage if you can afford to pay yourself higher like it's the, like keeping that money in the bank is not going to make you scale faster like if you just put the money into things that are like propelling you forward then you're going to end up like it's, it's going to end up coming back and you're going to end up making more. Mm-hmm. I think something you have to factor into that is if you are a 501c3, yes. there is a certain ceiling for the amount that you can spend on admin. You definitely don't hit that in the first three years. No. <laughs> but you've got to be very careful oh, of with course. It because you don't want to lose. So in yeah. taking a salary for yourself,
6: that's something to be considered. Yeah. Yeah. So there what, are like guidelines I like, yeah. Yeah, Well, I was just going to
4: offer, I know like, yeah. if you, you don't always have to go the C3 route. So with that fiscally sponsored project, my organization is a fiscally sponsored organization. And so one of the things that we try to, how I think about even my own pay, I probably had three raises in our our two years just because I started out at the very bottom. And then I was like, actually, what is the industry standard for executive directors? I would like to be as close to what my peers are as possible, and I'm still probably way off from where most white cisgender people are in the the nonprofit industry, but that was how I based my ceiling. So I said, okay, funders, this is where you actually have to fund me at because not only do I need to live, but this needs to be somewhat equitable. Um, and so as an organization that's constantly thinking about that, I'm constantly basing each of our positions off of what is the standard average for this position within the industry and how close can we get to it, even if we're not going to have all of the funding. Another piece that I just wanted to add in that's really important with your backers, whether it's investors or funders or whatever the case may be, you want to make sure again in that general operating support that things that you need in terms of like child care or mental health care, that those are things that your funders are actually providing additional resources or creating a very specific plan around mm-hmm. those resources mm-hmm. so that you can meet those type of needs. All right, cool, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank
0: That's you, we all. Uh, we, we built in a lot of breaks today, so... Uh, and if there's a panel that uh, deserved to go along with this one. A uh, little round of applause. That was really. That was awesome. I expected it to be awesome. Man.